Welcome to Outside the Music Box. I'm Chloe Prendergast. And I'm Emma Williams. We're so glad you've joined us today. We're both violinists based in the Netherlands and have created this podcast in our search to find fun new ways to share and talk about music we love. Each episode, we explore a different piece of music through the eyes of a guest musician. Our goal is that you don't have to be a total music nerd to enjoy this podcast, so we put little explanations of technical terms, some background info, and excerpts of the music we're talking about throughout the episode. If we miss anything, definitely let us know and we'll clarify in future episodes. We've also linked some Spotify playlists in the show notes with all the music we talk about so you can enjoy for your own listening pleasure. Today's guest is double bassist Rob Nan, who we actually both know separately. Chloe from some gigs in the US when Rob lived there, and me from gigs in Australia since he moved back a few years ago. He's an amazing bassist and is always such a fun guy to have on tour. Today he's brought in two different opera arias. The first is a baritone aria called Hier ist die Aussicht frei from Robert Schumann's Scenes from Goethe's Faust. And the second is Svera Amike from Agostino Stefani's Niobe Regina di Tebe. This show is listener supported, so dear listener, please consider donating to help us keep this podcast running and to pay our friend Joanna Neuschatz for the wonderful work she does helping us edit. You can donate what you feel this podcast is worth to you in relation to what you have. Just head to paypal.me slash musicboxconcerts, which we'll also link in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and enjoy our chat with Rob. Can you hear okay. me? Yes. We can hear you. Hey, Chloe. Hey, Rob. Nice How's it to going? See you. Nice to see you too. How are you? It's been a long time. It's been a really long time. Thanks for inviting me. I'm a little humbled yeah. And, and, yeah, figured you must be running out of guests if you've asked me to be on there. Oh, shush. No. <laughs> Top of the list. Um, well, what we do on this podcast, actually, is we get our guests to introduce themselves. So, okay. would you mind introducing yourself for everyone? Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Rob Nairn. I'm talking from Adelaide in Australia here. I'm a double bass and violone player. Um, I've lived most of my life in America and the United Kingdom. And uh, just three years ago, four years ago, I guess, we came back to Australia um, for our kids to attend school here. Um, What else should I say? Yeah, that's enough. (laughs) Um, When did you live in the UK, actually? Um, Let's see, we moved to London from Sydney in 96, and we were there from 96 to 99. And then then the US. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. nice. Yeah, and did you live in, I can't remember, because we met in Boston, but I don't, did you live there? or did you? Uh, live I never lived in Boston. I worked there for 14 years. I had that job as principal of Handelheim Society, sleeping on a friend's couch, which was always a temporary arrangement. Um, mm. And one of those things about, maybe it's bass players or musicians generally, for years and years, every time I moved back to, uh, I kept working with Floral Legium in London for years after I moved to the US and I always just slept on Ashley Solomon's couch and a temporary arrangement just ended up not changing. And the same in Boston when I started working with Hannah Hyden when I got the job there as principal bass. Um, I just stayed on a friend's couch and I was always looking for somewhere to to make more permanent, but it was only sort of 10 weeks a year. So it wasn't like you could rent an apartment in Boston for that time and ended up 14 years later when I 
when I, you know, when we left, I was still <laughs> staying on my friend's couch. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. So where did you live? Uh, well, we actually, we lived in State College in Pennsylvania because the first job I had oh. in the US was at Penn State University, a big um, land grant university. And then from there, I was commuting to New York to teach at Juilliard and commuting up to Boston. So I, I, I don't know how many kilometers I did every year, but it was pretty astronomical. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, from, from being an Australian from South Australia, you're not really, you, you have no experience in any kind of bad weather driving. This, you know, rain on the road here is nothing. Um, and when we, when we lived up in the mountains, there was sort of four months a year of snow and ice. And so you get very used to you know, really serious winter driving. You have to have four-wheel or all-wheel drive cars. Um, and, you know, the number of accidents you'd see driving up to Boston in the wintertime and, you know, that seven-hour drive that could take 14 or 15 easily without any problem at all um, wow. on bad weather. And I'd always drive doing this and I'd get to Boston with my hands kind of cramped on the wheel and I'm wondering, what am I doing? <laughs> what yeah. am I doing? This? <laughs> but it was a great orchestra to play with, so it was really, really fun. We had a lot of great directors there and Harry Christophers was the last sort of six years and he was great but we had um a roger norrington and and uh, a lot of people were, were our chief conductors for a while so it was a great experience yeah amazing um okay and um you've brought in a couple of different arias do you have yep. one that you want to start with um maybe the schumann first um and these these are sort of a bit random i guess in terms of selection because uh there's an awful lot of music that i love um pieces that uh you know i've loved so much my wife's given them to me as a wedding present and things like that um and these were different because these these were real surprises they're not music that i knew and uh in 1996 when we moved to london uh heidi my wife and i were were working in sydney she was um she'd been with the opera but she's in the sydney symphony and i'd been in the australian chamber orchestra for um almost four years and i filled in for case borsma he hurt his hand and i filled in for him for nine months as principal of the sso so we were basically living in a beautiful apartment in neutral bay we'd see the ferry coming over and we'd you know finish our coffee and walk down to the ferry and hop over to the opera house this is ideal sort of life and um doing lots of gigs and uh we decided that we wanted to move to london we had always intended to because we met and lived in germany for a while and um came back to Adelaide, principally Adelaide Symphony for a couple of years and then Sydney and had always intended to go back to Europe again. And when we finally did, people said we were crazy. And I think every time we've moved somewhere, when people have said we're crazy, then I usually think I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. Uh, and this instance, when we moved over, we had met Richard Hickox and he'd uh, uh, given us sort of a place to live. So we had a bit of a base, but we had no real musical context over there. So we had to audition for everything and go through the whole English trial system. And, and that was all a great learning experience. And London's got the best pubs in the world. So, you know, anytime you're feeling down, it's a great, great way to cheer up. Uh, but yeah. probably one of the first weekends I was there, um, Jolly Lett Gardner and the Orchestra Revolutionaire et Romantique had this big Schumann festival. And as an orchestral player, and I'd really only done really modern orchestral playing up until that point, uh, I was never, never a great fan of Schumann's. I thought his symphonies were weak and uh kind of colorless and i didn't know any of his vocal music and any oratorios and i knew the piano quintet but and the you know the piano and cello concertos but really i didn't know his music at all and, and i had no empathy for it and and I, I didn't really like it to be honest i wouldn't have bought a schumann record other than to study and uh there was a schumann festival and first of all like you know i think if i remember it's over three days and it, it featured an enormous amount of all the, the symphonies and chamber music concerts and there was just a vast number of music that's played and uh, it just transformed my uh, my impression of Schumann hearing it on period instruments and with that kind of passion that they played it was just extraordinary and 
you made me realize that, you know, sometimes the only reason you don't like a composer is the setting and the way in which it's played. And um, this was extraordinary. And I, the thing that really impressed me was his oratorios or the vocal music, which I, I didn't even know he wrote, you know, Paradise and the Perry and so forth. And these pieces are scenes from Goethe's Faust. And when I heard this this little section here where Dr. Marianus, you know, sort of ascends into the heavens, I thought it was one of the most incredibly beautiful things I'd ever heard in my life. I mean, it really had me in tears, in it, and that doesn't happen very often. Robert Schumann was a 19th century German composer who's most known for his instrumental music, but he also wrote some really amazing vocal music like this oratorio, Scenes from Goethe's Faust. An oratorio is like an opera, but with little or no staging or costumes, so it still follows a narrative of sorts and is usually for orchestra, choir, and vocal soloists, but the singers don't have to act out the scenes as they would in a normal opera. There are three parts to Schumann's Scenes from Goethe's Faust. This aria that Rob is talking about is from the final part, labeled Faust's Transfiguration. By the way, aria is just a fancy word for song, and by fancy we mean Italian. <laughs> and in this aria, the character of Dr. Marianus represents Faust's purified soul, and the orchestra creates an atmosphere representing the ethereal afterlife. was just I just thought one of the most extraordinary things so I rushed out and I found a really beautiful old recording um one it's one of the last things that Benjamin Britten recorded with English Chamber Orchestra it's got Dietrich Fischer Diskau singing the part yeah. from the, the 72 73 and it's just heavenly and it's it's you know for me that's you know I've always said that's the piece I want to have played in my funeral because I think it's the most sublime you know I can't listen to it without kind of tearing up yeah, <laughs> and wow. that doesn't usually happen at all but it's just the most um, you know, when the heart comes in and the beautiful oboe melody and, and when you hear the colours there, you sort of hear uh, much more clearly the orchestra writing that influenced so many other people. I, I hear Richard Strauss in it and a lot of the influential stuff that, that did influence other poses and you sort of start understanding why he was such an important composer in, in that succession rather than just another name that wrote a couple of pretty pieces. Um, so it, it was one of the things that just really showed me you can, you know, you can be at whatever age and have your idea of a composer completely changed. And, uh, yeah, so I, I, I don't listen to that very often. I, I, every time, it's almost never played. That's the other thing. It's really quite obscure and it's something that people don't know. Um, but ever, if I'm ever really sad, I'll put it on. <laughs> oh, good of catharsis. <laughs> yes, really good out. Great old Barossa Red. And um, this is just yeah, <laughs> fantastic piece for that. So uh, that's, that would be my, my introduction. Yeah, amazing. I mean, yeah, I don't really know any of Schumann's vocal stuff either, which is bad because I sing. But um, <laughs> but it's true that, yeah, he, he 
you know, it's not really done that often. Um, But it is amazing the kind of colours that he brings out in this particular aria. Um, And, yeah, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about the lead-up, do you know, of the story? Uh, You know, it's that he he jumps around an awful lot um, between the different sections in Goethe's Faust. And this is, uh, this section is just before he dies. And uh, it's not a, it's not a straight, easy thing to explain what's going on. And Schumann never intended for it to be played as a whole. I mean, he wrote scenes from Goethe's Faust. He expected them just to be done in little sections. Um, And this part five really starts with, with Dr. Marius ascending to heaven and, and giving this incredible account that uh, the harp takes him to the heavens and the oboe just gets higher and higher and higher and that just vacillates between G major and G minor and, and that's what I think is so Strauss-like. I haven't really studied the text enough to know, you know. No, it's quite a complicated text. I don't think it is a complicated story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember reading it in high school and them being like, yeah, wow, this is a really complicated story. And I remember hearing that people had written operas and uh, different scenes from it, but I never put it together. I never knew who. And and it makes sense that you would do scenes and not necessarily the whole thing in order. I think he wrestled with this over many, many years, like about 20 years or something um, between starting it and then finally finishing it. And the whole, I think it wasn't, there wasn't a complete performance of it until many years after he died. Yeah. Yeah. I think we were having a look at some of the background info on it and um, someone was saying that there was no coherence with the writing of it. Like it just, it sounded like, you know, two or three separate pieces. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what he, he intended. So there, there is a quote from him saying that it would would not be right to play it as a continuous piece. Um, but you know, the, I don't know this recording certainly works. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. yeah. So you um, haven't played? Oh wait, so you did play a bit of it? I've never or, performed it. No, you you know, and it, no. Um, and uh, you know, I did a program recently on one of the uh, five MBS you know, here in Adelaide and I just played records that I was on and, and that was great because I, you know, had things to say about what it was like to be in the recording and who these people are worth. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, this is something that, you know, I can't imagine ever having a chance to record it. It'd be great if I did. And I think some of my favorite pieces in the world are pieces that I will never record. I can't imagine being in a situation like I'd love to record, uh, Guru Leader, um, in Schoenberg's Guru Leader. It's one of my favorite pieces in the world and I don't think I ever will. And, you know, again, it's just such deeply spiritual music. It's quite extraordinary, um, and that's what I think with this with this scenes from Goethe's Faust too. It's it's very very spiritual. It's hard uh, to get away from that and not come away being very inspired by that.
would you like to play this piece or do you kind of enjoy also having it as the way it is in your life? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd dearly love to play it. The trouble is sometimes, you know, when you have a piece that's such a strong, you know, image in your head and then you go and record it and you sort of think, mm, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's different it, from what yeah. I imagine. Yeah, it can be a little unsettling and, and uh, I, I love to have my opinion completely transformed listening to a piece not so much, you know, recording it. Um, but that being said, gosh, I'd, I'd love to love to be able to play this and um, and record it. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't turn it down. I wouldn't say no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it is true. I mean, I guess it's a similar thing to like reading the book and then seeing the movie, and that can always be yeah. a bit of a stressful mm. thing, you know. Yeah, absolutely, like listening yeah. to something and having it in a special place in your head, and then going, "Oh, wait, what if I have to make it myself now?" Yeah, yeah. That you know. It, that can be an amazing thing or it can go the other way. Yeah. 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 That is true. Um, so do you just really love opera or is there a reason that you've brought two arias today and no bass music? <laughs> no bass music. <laughs> I don't want to turn your listeners off. <laughs> um, you know, it, I think, you know, if, if, if two percent, yes, I, I do love opera and I came to it quite late and, um, you know, I've enjoyed all the, things that I've gone to hear and it's it's just such a vast sphere of music and I feel experiences um with with the Boston and the Music Festival was something that um you know to see how these older operas could be completely reborn and the work that was put into the staging and the music um because usually you know the stuff I've done with Australian opera and you know, groups overseas has been just very short rehearsal period and then the, the performances and Boston Island Music Festival being really involved in the Continuo group and seeing that the whole thing build and, and seeing the staging evolve and everything was was uh, was fantastic and it's um, I think as a bass player one of the things that we're always trying to achieve and, and probably other instrumentalists as well is, is sort of get close to a bass voice um, you know we we strive all the time to to try and imitate that sort of full sound that resonant sound of the voice and um, I had this remarkable experience of being able to record Pequesta Bellamano with uh, Handel Haydn's Society in Boston and Harry Christopher's. And that's this Mozart bizarre sort of concert area for a bass voice and an obligato violone. And we actually did the first performance of that on period instruments using the actual Viennese violone that Mozart wrote it for. Nice. Rob just referred to the violone and Viennese bass. We talk about the violone in episode four with Maggie Urquhart, but all you need to know is that it is an earlier version of the double bass. The Viennese bass is a double bass as we know it today, but usually has five strings and is tuned differently to create a different sort of resonance in the instrument. These types of basses were used mainly in Austro-German music in the 18th and 19th centuries, like in this Mozart aria, Per questa bella mano, which translates to by this beautiful hand. It's a love song sung by a bass singer, with an obligato bass part. This means that the double bass acts as another soloist that complements and interacts with the singer. Rob is about to mention opera buffa, which is a genre of Italian comic opera and contrasts with opera seria, which is a noble and serious type of opera.
they had they were doing this record of the Re- Requiem and they were going to do the Ave Verum Corpus and they needed one other piece to go on the record from 1791. I said, oh, I always wanted to record <laughs> but it had a big, bigger orchestra than the Requiem. So we had to raise some money to actually get the other instruments there. And Eric Owens was on board to do the bass part of the Requiem. And for me, he's, you know, arguably one of the couple of greatest bass voices in the world. And when we played it, it was this sort of experience where um, it's usually played very fast because the bass voice isn't able to play those long, it's super deep. It was written for Francis Gale, who was known for his super low notes. And most bass voices, they can't sing those low notes and hold them long enough so that you end up playing the whole aria faster, which means the Viennese part's insane and sounds funny. And uh, it's often considered a piece of opera buffer. And playing and hearing him, he, he, you know, I did a little bit of research and found that I don't believe it's a piece of opera buffer, but Constanza was in Baden-Baden sick with their last child. And uh, this was her favourite tune. It was from a um, sort of light operetta that was popular in Vienna at the time. So he took that first stanza with the words and then wrote this new song. And when it's sung slowly, it's this very passionate song of love. And I said to Eric, you know, when we started, look, this is kind of what I think. And he goes, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And when he started singing, it was just... Eerie thing, and we did the rehearsals. I'm thinking, man, this guy's just God. Listen to that voice; it's just incredible. And we did the. It was a live performance, which is nutty for anyone doing Procesta Manai because it's a fiendishly difficult violini part, and I can't play that kind of stuff perfectly ever. And we had two live performances, and they told told us there'd be no editing. The editing would be used for the requiem. Um, so it was, it, you know, it's a bit like suicide, suicide by Procesta Bellamano. But when we were out <laughs> on the stage, and <laughs> you walk out and. Um, I opened the music and Guy Fishman had left me a little note in the in the music when I opened it. And uh, Symphony Hall was packed and any sense of nervousness was immediately gone the first time Eric opened his mouth. The sound was absolutely incredible, the most amazing bass voice. And, and the whole time I'm playing, it, it went better than expected, I suppose. And we're coming off stage and I, I just wanted to say something to him like, you know, not, gosh, you're amazing, or that was the most yeah. extraordinary thing I've ever heard. I just wanted to say something about how I just love once in my world to, to be able to play a single note that sounded like any of the notes you sang that night, to have that kind of resonance and that sound and everything. And I'm trying to think how to word this and feeling a bit like a, you know, need it. And then come off stage, he turns to me, he goes, you're the man. And I said, <laughs> are you the man? <laughs> said, no, you're the man. Just <laughs> <laughs> completely built it back. You know, so that that ability to have that sort of sound and, and just create that whole presence, um, that projection and stuff, particularly for bass voices, as for you know, from being a violin player, um, was just so inspiring. And so I, you know, it's not that I only love operas that've got bass voices in them, but I love watching people be able to make such a, um, you know, the acting and everything that's involved in the performance. And I, you know, I'd have to say, yeah, I've become a bit of an opera fan, even though. You know, living in Adelaide, we don't get to do much of it here and we don't get to see a lot of it. But nonetheless, when we do travel overseas, we always try and take the kids to opera. We kind of, you know, um, make them go to all these concerts. And actually, they, they love it now. So it's, it's, uh, that's a blessing. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a favorite opera then? Ooh. Might be too hard. Ah, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Um, if, you, if it's too hard of a question, you don't have to answer, or you could give a couple. Yeah. I'm um, just curious. Um, I love, I mean, I'm a huge Strauss fan, and I, I love almost all of his operas, Rosenkavalier especially, but Daphne, um, I'd, I'd see that 20 times just for that final scene. Uh, 
you know, Wagner, it's pretty hard not to. I've been to been lucky enough to be in Bayreuth uh, a number of times, Bayreuth, Bayreuth, to, to see um, to see that played both from the uh, in the audience and also from the pit. I mean, one of my dearest friends is one of the oh, actually, I know several bass players, but he he um, organizes the bass section there. So I've been there quite a few summers, and uh, you know, as a as a double bass player, as a modern double bass player, it doesn't get much juicier and more meat and potatoes than Wagner. So that's yeah, you know, that's our big powerful repertoire. Richard Wagner was another German composer, also in the 19th century. He's really famous for writing ridiculously long operas with very heavy storylines, like his Ring Cycle, which comprises four operas that take a total of 17 hours to perform. He was hugely influential for music history, but was also an anti-Semitic misogynist shithead who thought he was God's gift to mankind. He's a really good example of the issue of whether or not it's possible to divorce the morals of a composer from their music. Something for us all to ponder. Anyway, the stereotype of the huge opera singer wearing a Viking helmet with horns singing really loudly and intensely comes from Wagner. Not only did he change the course of music history, he also built an opera house in Bayreuth in Germany, which has been playing only Wagner operas since its inception in 1875. Part of the reason he built this opera house is because he wrote for a bloody huge orchestra and it couldn't fit in any normal theatre at the time. He also wanted the orchestra completely invisible to the audience, so in this theatre in Bayreuth, the orchestra is completely hidden under the stage and covered by a hood. This makes it very difficult for the conductor to keep the orchestra and singers together. It's a huge deal to even get a ticket to see an opera in the theatre in Bayreuth, let alone be hired to sing or play. Rob is awesome! <laughs> What's it like playing in the pit there? Oh, it's extraordinary. I mean, you don't, you don't, not in concert dress, you know, because no one can see you. You just, uh, you know, you're, you're in your, just your street clothes. Yeah. Um, and the bases are divided onto two sides. There's four on one side and four on the other usually. And um, it's the, uh, what do they call them? The black side and the good side. <laughs> yeah. When you get on the sub list, you're put in one of those groups and you can never change. Every year, uh, opera runs over a large part of the summer and people are rostered on and off for different sort of things, depending because some orchestras start or finish uh, before the season starts and some are still going when the season starts. And then the same at the end of the season, it conflicts with the starting season. So they roster the plays on depending on their availability. Um, but there's always one thing in the middle um, and it's a, a journey, like a some sort of cruise sort of thing. It's a day that no, there's no opera on, but you have to go. And if you don't go, you're fined. It's not a massive fine, but uh, all the bass players have to attend and they invite older players who used to be in the section and, and guests and colleagues and um, not family, but just, uh, you know, bass players basically. And they do this journey and I've been there for a couple of them and you arrive at the Fishbill House early in the morning, you don't know where you're going to go. And sometimes they've gone to France, you've taken a bus to France and done stuff and um, mm. some of them have gone ballooning. They do all these stuff. They even fly and they, they, the budget's quite quite large it comes from the festival and this one day uh we caught the bus and it's eight o'clock in the morning they're pouring wine and having cheese and biscuits and stuff and so my friend said oh it's going to be a wine day we're going wine tasting somewhere probably france and um we went around uh drove around for a little while came to the top of this monastery 
and then had to walk all the way down this incredibly steep incline down to the Rhine River, and there was a, a boat, like a giant raft there. And, and we did this raft journey all day, and people came on the boat, gave us tastings from different places, and we um, just drank, and they were you could row, uh, and, you know, there was competitions um, the whole day, and we ended up in this tiny little medieval village for dinner in the evening. Um, it was just extraordinary that no cars could come into, and we had to walk out of that dinner, having had a lot of tea to drink, uh, to get the bus back to the Feshbühlhaus, and that's a very big bonding session that they do. So uh, anyway, I don't know what got me onto that, but it's... Uh, wait, wait, wow. But is that just the bass section? No one just else? The bass no, just the basses, yeah. I want to be a bass player. I want to be a bass player. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Back to the job. Yes, yes, yeah. And <laughs> I mean, it's a um, it's a beautiful part of the world to be in during the summer too. Um, it's really, yeah. really quite lovely. Yeah. Also, I find just like working on an opera in general. It's I mean, it's such a huge production. No matter what type of opera you're doing, even if it's a small one. And but the kind of excitement of all the different elements coming together and that kind of like oh, yeah. multitasking and compartmentalizing things and kind of just being part of that bigger story and having singers around and having costumes and sets and um yeah, I it always just gives you that like a particular type of energy and like excitement that you don't get playing any other type of music. Absolutely. That, yeah. my, my last my last sort of real job, um a performing <laughs> job was principal of the Halle Orchestra in Manchester before we moved to America. And uh, I acted in the job for a while as the pre- previous principal had left and then won the job. But part of that um, period we played um, uh, and recorded for Dr. Gramophon, uh, Messian's opera St. Francis of Assisi at the Salzburg Festival. And so that's um, it's a four-CD set. So it's like seven hours from when you walk into the pit until you, until you leave in Salzburg fashion with the big intervals. And we did 13 performances of it. Whoa. Uh, over the summer and the last two were recorded for Deutsche Gramophon and then they did a couple of days of editing after that. But Peter Sellers designed the sets and they had um, uh, Kent Nagano who was conducting. He'd been the um, assistant conductor at the premiere, which was only really a few years earlier, but before Messian died um, in Paris. And Jose Van Damme and Dawn Upshaw, who sang the original parts, were there to sing them this time as well. And Peter Sellers was the most extraordinary. I mean, that's the only time I've actually worked in a production that he did and, and where we had any interaction with him at all. And all these these television sets on stage that moved around and everything, and, and the visuals are incredible. And, again, it was sort of Salzburg, so it was the main centrepiece opera for the Salzburg Festival, so there was a big budget. Um, and it was, it was just fantastic to play, it really just extraordinary. The only drag for that is, you know, as a principal bass player, you're the only person that really has to count. And, you know, Messian has sections where you're playing those Gregorian chant long drone bass notes and they'd be 246 bars off and then these furiously fast birdsong things another 200 bars off and then these solo bass chant things another you know 145 bass and you couldn't see the players so we're really deep down in the pit so the rest of them just had books they're reading and I'm the only person that has to count and you know with with Kent Nagano you there's no way you can't ever not come in you know and he relies on you to be counting the whole time so I think um my my orchestral counting is probably nowhere near as good as it was back in those days. But in that right on that point, my orchestral counting was uh, I was right on it. Was really you were the best. <laughs> was you were the best counter. <laughs> we had a huge. We had eleven bases in the section, and it was just wow. an enormous um, group. So it was really fun. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, in that respect, I've got a lot of very fond memories of opera performances. 
Mm. Yeah, and I guess because bass is always, I don't know, they're kind of the, they do the turning points for, for like the important bits of opera as well. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, just, yeah, always basses are important, but <laughs> for that, particularly in opera. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. yeah. And speaking of amazing memories playing operas, shall we talk about the Stefani? <laughs> yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, th- this bit is, um, is again, it's one of those moments where I, I just heard this music and I couldn't believe it. And I'd never heard of Stefani before we started this project with the Boston Island Music Festival. And he's uh, a bit of a, you know, a sort of missing link between sort of Cavalli and, and Handel in some respects and uh, um, known, known more as a statesman, although he um, was employed at the court in Hanover a little bit before Handel. Um, but he had this long period at the court in um, in Munich, and that's where Stefani was premiered. And I think after that premiere, it wasn't played again until in Boston. For something a little different, Agostino Stefani was not a German composer and was not living in the 19th century. He was, in fact, a 17th century Italian composer. He's not very well known and spent most of his life as a diplomat, but he wrote some really beautiful music, including this opera, Niobe Regina di Tebe. It premiered in 1688 while he was employed at the court in Hanover, so actually we're right back in Germany again. This opera follows a version of the Greek myth of Niobe, who boasts too much about her 14 children, and so Artemis and Apollo kill them, and then she weeps herself to stone. You can go visit her in rock form in present-day Turkey. The aria Rob has brought in is sung by Amphion, Niobe's husband, who at this point in the story is playing innocently with his children. Little does he know that they're all about to be killed which I guess just happens in tragic Greek myths all the time. Um, Rob was playing this opera in the Boston Early Music Festival in 2015, which was apparently the first time it was being performed since its premiere 327 years earlier. Um, and one of the things about the Boston Early Music Festival is it, it finds this these music that's been referred to or that, uh, you know, taste change. And, and of course, people wanted new things all the time back then, even more so than now. And uh, so great pieces were played and performed every year and then maybe not again at, at all if they weren't performed anywhere else or if the rights to them were owned by the, the patron and he didn't want them played anywhere else. So um, this was a piece that was extraordinary and um, Philip Jarowski wanted to sing this and uh, Boston had contacted him and so we ended up um, doing this program and he's the most extraordinary voice um, that you know I've really ever heard and just such a delight to work with so we did um, the Boston Music Festival and then we recorded it in Bremen and then we toured it um, sort of a stage version of it around Europe and uh, so that was really fun we got to go to Madrid for a week to rehearse it again and and then did this long extended tour so it was um it was just one of those kind of great things and this moment is is, is great because I didn't have to play. I could actually sit and listen. <laughs>
And um, there's a video of it on YouTube of this particular aria. And I'm, I'm just, I'm in the corner of the picture sitting, looking up on stage. It was great. But uh, it's the most, uh, I mean, it's like, it's, you know, another one of the stories from Ovid's Metamorphosis where, you know, the great tragedy and um, Amphione is, doesn't really want to be king and, and abdicates in favor of his wife, Niobe, who's very um, ambitious and uh, he wants to play with his children. And then and depending on whatever bit you read, there's 12 or 15 children or something. And um, of course, then she angers the gods and they kill them all. And uh, Amphione um, dies of grief and, and Niobe turns to stone. And that's the, you know, the cheery, happy sort of story. And it takes, you know, three hours to to, to, to play out. But in this particular moment, he's, he's abdicated the throne and he's just essentially kind of playing with his children. And there's a beautiful moment on stage where um, Philip Jodorowsky is on stage and his children start surrounding him, each one with a planet. So they were studying science and, and it's just absolutely heavenly. It was um, Gilbert Jin was the um, stage producer and, and he just came up with this most extraordinary setting and idea for this design. And uh, I never got sick of, every time we did it, it was uh, especially just when we had that fully staged production in Boston I, I never got tired of hearing it and uh, it's always been one of my favorite pieces the recit before it is also gorgeous but the aria is really you know for such a short aria it's really packs quite a wallop emotionally but uh, yeah yeah and then when you know what's happening all these children are about to die you know <laughs> it's even more uh, yeah I actually found because we found that video um, I think it's just on Facebook we'll put the link in our show notes for yeah. people it's on YouTube also yeah I think yeah um and I did actually get that sense of like a bit foreshadowing or the sinister kind of sadness that is about to come. Yeah. Because it's, yeah, the kind of totally still, Philippe is just stuck there still and kind of just singing with these sort of wild eyes. And, um, yeah, it, it is incredibly beautiful, but you kind of get that sense of like what's well, going to happen. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he could, he could do that so brilliantly well, I mean, his, his control of his emotions, I haven't seen anyone like that since you, you look at the old videos of Maria Callas, and we use that as a model for, for my students about how to, she was the greatest actor who ever sang, and about trying to keep that, that, that control of one particular character so perfectly, you know, so that when you're playing these different musics from different periods, you adopt those sort of characters and they become what you are. And she was so fantastic at that. And beautiful when you hear her talk about it as well. She's such an eloquent um speak so eloquently in, in English. And uh, so I, I, you know, make my students sit through videos of watching her, but you see the expression on her face and you just believe that she's dying consumption or that she's, you know, she's incredibly happy or whatever. She's very powerful. And Philippe's really one of the modern singers that I think manages to convey that very, very clearly. He's got a great gift, not not just voice. Yeah. And what um, you were saying that you you feel like it, packs a really emotional punch which is so true what what emotions would you use to describe this piece well when you hear it it's got this sort of it's stunningly beautiful and I think that's the first thing is when you hear it, it's like oh that's so beautiful but there's something in the music there's some twinge of sadness in the music something slightly unsettling about the, the way it modulates and it moves back and so forth I mean and it sounds sad there's just this sadness through it as if this is extraordinary happiness. He's just doing exactly what he wants to do. He's playing with his children. But, you know, inherently it's now part of a, a motion towards this inevitable tragedy. But uh, if it had just been a happy, 
you know, a fast, happy kind of thing, which you might expect playing with the children, playing so, but it's not. It's this unbelievable poignancy about the the music and the, and the shift and, and no bass. <laughs> so maybe that. Okay. <laughs> That's the trick. That's the trick, yeah. It does take out the foundation a little bit in a way that leaves you hanging. Like, mm, it doesn't feel totally settled, no, which is no. what happens when there's no bass. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's amazing suspensions and that they, they sort of just keep going. And he sings this ethereal thing over the top of it. It's just so beautiful. Um, but it is. It's, it's beautiful, but it's not – there is something about it that's not – it's not happy. You know, there is something mm. coming uh, inevitably. Um, I think maybe also the group of three notes, like repeating, um, is maybe, yeah, I don't know, is that inherently unsettling or, or can be, I guess? I guess it can be. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. 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 And you're right. It's also not like a fast ch- chipper aria. Like yes, it could, no, be, not, it could yeah. be a lot faster also. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not. Yeah, this is amazing. I didn't know that aria at all. Me neither. And what year did you do this recording in opera? Ooh, um, let me see. I've got the booklet here. There's probably a date on it. Oh, wow. 2015 we recorded it, so it's not that far ago. Yeah. Um, was this production kind of close to your dream production of this opera, or would you like to do it again in a, sort of another way, like if there was no budget or any sort of constraints? Mm, gosh, um, I, I'd love to do it with, with Bemf again. Uh, I probably don't think they would do it again, uh, sadly. But, uh, um, you know, I had, I had this dream of establishing a festival out here in, in Adelaide, um, an international rock music festival. And this is one of the operas that I talked to them about bringing out. So maybe, um, mm. maybe I have this thing, I'll be an, a director of a festival, but I have to play bass in, um, in some of the productions because I'd ideally love to do this again. Uh, I don't, it's so obscure. I don't think even with the popularity of that recording that it's likely to come onto the playbills of many modern opera companies, um, you know, given how hard it is just to sell opera these days anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if there was a chance to do it again, I'd, I'd jump at it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I reckon one day it's possible. Absolutely possible. Yeah. Yeah. Keep my fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we do have one final question that we ask our guests. Uh, is there a piece from another instrument's repertoire that you're jealous of? Oh, a single piece. Gosh, there's thousands. Um, <laughs> I mean, some of it comes from that idea about, yeah, trying to uh, trying to imitate the colour and and depth of a voice like Eric Owens on the bass. And you realize at a certain point, you just can't do that. You know, you've got to play what's written for you. Um, bass players always, modern bass players always have this cello envy. And mm. it's, we, we try and steal cello rapper. We, you know, the Bach solo suites, the Beethoven sonatas. And I'm as guilty of that as anybody. And as a student, you know, it's not to say we have a limited repertoire, but in, in truth we do. Um, and when you listen to, you know, the Beethoven sonatas that other instruments play and Mozart and so forth, we, uh, we have, 
you know, really such a tiny amount of, of what you'd say is really great historical repertoire. Um, and so I've often, you know, done the same, tried to find pieces in, um, I think Mendelssohn's second cello sonata is a piece that I sort of uh, tried to play a lot that I really, really enjoyed. And then I remember having lessons from Anna Bilsmer and I, I, we did a tour with him in the ACO. It's one of the first, um, one of the things that really just completely changed my life and where I wanted to play on historical instruments. And, and touring with him, of course, is it's just nutty and, and, and really inspiring at the same time. But I had some lessons from him. And when he came back to Sydney, I had some lessons before he left to go back to Europe again. And um, I played a, remember, a long lesson and with several bottles of wine um, playing a Beethoven <laughs> sonata to him. And we got to the point, and I, you know, it's before cell phone cameras because, I, you know, he picked up and played the bass for a while. And it just would have been a fabulous photo. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, he said at one point he stopped and he said, it's like you have cello envy. And I said, well, yeah, of course, all bass players have cello envy. He said, he was really shocked and he said, but that's insane. He said, all cellists have bass envy. They said, well, yeah. he said, oh, they'll never admit it. But he said, you sit in the orchestra and listen to that sound behind you, that big, huge, rich sound. Everyone wants to sound like that. And they play the cello and there's silly little noise of the C strings. There's, no, there's no real kind of thing there. <laughs> And he was being really serious and said, I've never heard that. He said, no, 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 nobody ever admit to it. You know, but he said, all cellists have bass envy. They, you know, they just, they just aren't, you know, man enough to admit it. But uh, I thought that was really funny. I never thought of anyone being jealous of the sound that we make. And yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah. But there are, there are lots of times I hear things and think, oh, you know, clarinet playing, some just spectacular, beautiful clarinet playing, the slow movement of the Mozart concerto and, things like that. And even Eric Dolphy, his bass clarinet playing made me want to sort of see if I could actually play the bass clarinet. And then I realized that's, you know, it's, it's no. him. It's not, not the instrument, you know. <laughs> his skill. Okay. Right. Yeah. 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 I tried to get some of the solos. He did all these bass clarinet things later on and some solo stuff. And I, I sort of got some of it transcribed and uh, thought I'd see if I could play it on the bass. And it's just, it's hopeless. It's, you know, it's, it's so indicative of what he's doing and, and it's, it doesn't translate terribly well or I would never do it enough justice. So Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's all right. <laughs> we each have our things. <laughs> right. Totally. And those are all very good answers. Yeah. <laughs> um and what's the best way for our listeners to find your stuff, listen to your things, get in touch with you, support you? Um, well, uh, I don't have a website. Um, they could always email me. Um, my email is rnan03 at gmail.com. I'm very happy to answer emails all the time. Uh, I do have a bunch of CDs, some duo CDs and things, but, um, uh, they're, um, they're available through all the usual kind of regular channels. Um, but yeah, if anyone's interested in anything that I've said or anything about the base of your learning, very happy to answer any questions at all. And you do have a new CD that's just come out with Iron Wood. Yes, we do. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. This is really exciting, actually. Um, I love working with Danny and Neil um, and uh, Rachel and all the people on this assignment and so forth. Uh, And they asked me to come up and be a part of Ironwood and do this recording. And I'm on one of the pieces on the record is called Romantic Dreams. It's on ABC Classics. Um, It's Louis Ferenc Quintet and a Camille Sassons Quintet, both for piano and strings. I get very excited when I come back from something and I've, I've just like, I really learned a lot. Um, it's something I'm very proud of and very proud to have been a part of. Yeah. That's really yeah. exciting. Well, yeah. we'll link that yeah. one in our show notes. Yeah. Okay, and this is cool. what friend of the pod, Rachel Beasley was talking about in her. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it hadn't come out yet. No. So now it has come out. Yeah. Cool. 
Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us and chatting. Oh, it's it's here. No worries. Thanks for having me on. so much for tuning in to Outside the Music Box. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Rob Nairn. If so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and tell all your friends about it. And thanks to those of you who have left some lovely reviews. Keep them coming. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any questions or want to share music that you love, you can write to us at concerts.musicbox at gmail.com or on Facebook and Instagram at Music Box Concerts and Twitter at Outside Music Box. Write in with comments or questions that you have and we'll get back to you. Big shout out to Joanna Neuschatz for her help with editing and reminders to donate via our PayPal, which is paypal.me forward slash musicboxconcerts. It's super easy to donate and these donations help keep the podcast running in lieu of advertising. In the show notes, we've included links to three Spotify playlists. One specifically for the pieces in this episode and the others for all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast so far. However, we really encourage you to purchase music in order to support the artists. The best way to support Rob is by checking out the links in the show notes, and you can also email him if you have any questions at rnairn03 at gmail.com. See you next time, Outside the Music Box. Music Box.